This morning we'll be continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verses 17 through 34, and Paul's going to be discussing uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, but we do need to, to have a little bit of context and a reminder of, of what this was like, because when we, when we talk about things uh, that we practice in the church, like taking communion, right, we bring a lot of uh, history and a lot of uh, background to it, right? There are, there are things we grew up seeing it, or we at least know about it even culturally if we came to Christ uh, later. We might have some knowledge of it, but this was all brand new to them. Uh, and this was all brand new, uh, a brand new concept, and, and the way they met uh, was different than the way we meet now. So uh, they met primarily in homes, and actually that's what we see in Acts chapter 18 when Paul founds the church. It tells us that when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. So, I mean, this is very funny to me, right? That, that Paul is like, I'm out of here. You guys are not listening to me and your blood be on your own heads. I'll see you later. And he like leaves and just goes next door and starts the church. You can imagine the synagogue leaders probably being like, we kicked Paul out last week. How come I can still like hear him in the, di- like in the distance, like you know, through the walls, right? Like it just still, it's still happening. It's like right there next door. But it's a house. It's just this man's house. It's where they met. And they probably met in other homes throughout the week. Um, that's where they didn't have an exclusive church building. Um, and it was also a very diverse uh, congregation, right? They had Jews and Gentiles. They had rich and poor. They had those who were strong in their faith and those who were weak in their faith. They had wise and they had the foolish. And they had to learn what it meant to be the church. What does it mean to be brothers and sisters in Christ? How do they look out for the interests of others above their own, like Paul's been talking about? So we're going to dive into it uh, today. We'll look first at verses 17 through 22. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must, be fa- there must be factions among you in order for those who are genuine among you to be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses in, to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So Paul addresses what is happening when they come together. And it's right off the bat, you know, he's mad at them, right? He's like, what I'm about to say next, I do not commend you. You're not been doing this right. I don't commend you. When you come together, it's for, not for the better, it's for the worse. He says that um, they're, because they're very connected, they're coming together all the time, right? They're, they're the minority in any city that they're in. This is a brand new thing. And so they cling tightly together. 
There was only one church in Corinth. So it's not as if believers who had disagreements could just leave and go to another church, right? That's an interesting fact of why we can even have letters like this, right? Is because in Corinth, if they were, if they were doing things differently or they were divided in some way, they were having a disagreement, it's not like one of them could just go, fine, I'll see you guys later and go to the, the next church. There was only one church, right? And so they had to fight these things out. Could never happen today because that's not what happens, right? Somebody gets mad at somebody else, they just leave and go to another church, right? But here they have to actually wrestle with and work these things out. And they meet in one another's homes. It's clear that they regularly met for worship on Sundays, but they also probably met throughout the week and shared numerous meals throughout the week. The problem in Corinth is that these gatherings are not making anything better. They're only making things worse, right? Time doesn't necessarily fix anything if the behavior doesn't change. They just continue to come together and hurt each other. And Paul says that when they come together, there are divisions among them. And and I want you to notice um, what I believe is an intentional pun in verse 18. I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. Right? That's a pun. Paul's making dad jokes. Okay. So he's already discussed some of these divisions in chapters 1 and 3, and, and he had, they had, we also have seen they've divided along many lines, right? He's already discussed all of these different issues, and he's clearly talking to two different sides of the issue. So we see that they divided over who they followed. We see that in chapters 1 and 3. We see them divide in chapter 5 over sexual immorality, this man who is sleeping with his father's uh, wife. We see them dividing over lawsuits and, and whether they can take each other to court. We see them dividing over marriage and singleness and celibacy. We see them divided over circumcision. We see them divided over whether or not they can eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. And we see them last week divided over how they should practice head coverings. And, and in verse 19, Paul makes the interesting comment again. He's like, I, I feel like he's just like really feeling it in this passage. Because, it, you know, in verse 19, he says, There must be factions among you in order for those who are genuine among you to be maybe recognized. Like, man, it's like, that's pretty biting, right? Like, hey, there have to be factions among you because only some of you are right. Right? Some of you are genuine, some of you are correct, others of you are not, and I'm going to sort it out. So his, his issue with them is how they gather together, and, and, and specifically how and what they eat when they gather together. That they're having these individual meals, which it was not meant to be. They were meant to be communal meals. Um, this is actually a common practice at the time. They were known as agape feasts or love feasts. And uh, essentially, everyone from the church would bring some bit of food, and then they would share it. They would share it together. Yes, this is how old the church potluck is. That's what's happening here. They're, they're bringing food together, and they're, uh, they're sharing it. But that's not what they're actually doing here. Here, they're actually bringing their own food, and they're eating their own food. And in a church with such a broad socioeconomic range, that goes all the way from being a, a slave uh, to the wealthy. 
This isn't a good plan. And what is happening, it seems, is those who are rich and don't have to actually physically work all day, they're showing up early, right? And again, I think it's important that we try to like see this from their perspective of like, why would they do this? Because it seems so terribly wrong. But you figure you got a group of them who are wealthy and who don't have to work all day and they go like, hey, let's get there early and we can talk and drink some wine and have some food and, and we'll eat and like, it'll be good. And then later everyone will get there and we can worship together. So they're getting there and they're just like drinking wine to the point that they're getting drunk. They're eating all this food so that they're like, then, then all the poor people, the slaves and those day laborers who are working, you know, literally pay day by day, they're, they're, the money they make that day buys the food that they eat and, and they, they don't have anything, anything to like, you know, fall back on. They're showing up at the end of the day and they're sweaty and dirty and hungry and they show up and they walk in and there's this group of wealthy people who have been there for a couple hours, sauced and full and everything. And they're like, hey, come in, let's sing some songs. Like, that hurts, right? Paul says like, hey, you're humiliating them. You're humiliating them. This is not right the way you're doing this. There are some of them that are going there and they're hungry and there are some that are getting drunk. And Paul's criticism, notice it's, I think this is crucial, and, and this is crucial in terms of how we see these practices, this practice in the early church. Paul does not criticize the rich for not sharing. He criticizes them for essentially flaunting it, right, for just eating and drinking to their full um, in front of everybody else. He says, don't you have houses you can eat and drink in? If that's what you need to do, if you need to just go have your full meal and all that stuff, do that before you come together for worship. Now, I think he would tell them, and based on other scripture, we could see that he would tell them, like, the, the gospel should motivate you to care about them and to share what you have. Like, that should be your motivation is that because of what Jesus has done for you, you would care for your brothers and sisters in Christ and want to share what you have. But he does not tell them that they have to do that. He tells them, if you want to do that, do that at home and then come together for worship. His big criticism is, is this flaunting it in front of them and to, of getting drunk before they, they come together for worship. They sh if they're going to come together as a church, they should bring what they have and bring it with the intention of sharing. Because otherwise, again, they're, they're just humiliating the poor and they're, undoubtedly it's going to lead to resentment, right? Again, undoubtedly, if you were that day laborer showing up after a long day's work and you just see all these people who have just been lounging and eating and drinking all, all afternoon, that's not going to create a good feeling in, in your heart toward them. Now, I had said at the beginning of this that we're talking about communion, and we, you see Paul use the term the Lord's Supper in this passage, but it's worth asking, like, were they taking communion? Is that what's going on here? Because, again, this doesn't sound like communion, Right? It sounds like a potluck. It sounds like a potluck. And I think that there is, in that sense, like because of what Paul is saying here, uh, we should pause because I think there is some very real application here for how we practice church potlucks. And this is what I will say. 
every time we have a potluck, usually it's like, hey, we kind of provide the meat and people bring sides and things like that. And uh, so every time, uh, I, at the beginning, I kind of stand up and say like, hey, if everyone could start with like one piece of meat, like one burger or hot dog or pulled pork sandwich, whatever it is, just start with one. So we make sure we have enough for everybody. And then every time, I watch all the people that walk through the line first walk out with like a mountain of food and a hamburger and a hot dog and a little pulled pork because they just wanted to try it. Okay? So let me say, based on scripture, stop it. Okay? It's real. Like, that's not okay. And it's exactly what Paul's talking about here. Right? We need to care about the other people that we are eating with, especially when we eat together as the body of Christ. And so I think that's a very real application that we have here for how we potluck is influenced by what Paul is saying here. Now, are they talking about taking communion? Well, Paul is, is kind of saying, like, first of all, the way that Jesus instituted communion was during a meal. Right? They were eating a Passover meal when he instituted this practice of remembering him with the, with the bread and the cup. And what Paul is saying, when you come together as a church and you're taking this meal together, it's like you are taking communion together. And probably part of that meal would have involved them taking communion together, but they're just doing it in the wrong way. Right now, and again, it doesn't really apply to, like that part is hard for us to like connect because again, like even if, I mean, we have the communion elements out in the back. I've never had a problem with people just like going back there and just like, bloop, 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 bloop. Right? even the kids don't do it because they're not good, <laughs> right? That's not the, the reason for it. And so that's not necessarily a problem that we have today, but it is what he is saying is, when you come together and eat together as the body of Christ, you need to recognize that there is a communal element to that, and it plays into this. Now, he is going to get into specifically what do the bread and cup represent. We'll look here at verses 23 through 26. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One interesting note about this passage is that these are actually the earliest recordings of the word of Jesus. Right? So obviously, it's not the earliest that Jesus spoke, right? It'll be during his ministry. But this letter is one of the earliest pieces of the New Testament that we have, and it, is, it was written before any of the gospel accounts. And so this is one of the first times that the words of Jesus were actually written down when Paul sat down and wrote this letter. And now it's interesting that it is Paul because we know that Paul did not walk with Jesus during his earthly ministry. So he did not directly witness these words when they happened, but he did receive the gospel directly from Jesus, from the resurrected Christ, right? He received it directly from a revelation from Jesus. We see this in Galatians chapter 1, 
where Paul is talking about how he received the gospel. And he says, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So Jesus in some way appeared to Paul and told him about this incident, told him about, hey, here's what happened when I instituted this, this uh, way of remembrance, that I was with the disciples in the upper room and I took the bread and this is what I did. He relays all this stuff to Paul. Paul is hearing this directly from Jesus. Okay, so now we're going to get into what he says here about the bread and the cup. And this is going to get a little bit like theology nerdy because these topics of, of in what way does the bread represent or stand in for or be the body of Christ, that is a very complex and like mysterious element of theology in which people get really technical with semantics and things like that. So in, in what sense is it the body of Christ? Because here he says, Jesus took the bread and said, this is my body. Now, that is actually an important detail because, because he's, Jesus is holding the bread and saying, this is my body. He says, this is my body, but they are clearly two different things because he is in his body and he is holding the bread. So it is not the exact same thing, which is why we can rule out things like transubstantiation, which is what um, they believe in the Catholic Church, um, which is that when you eat the bread and drink the, the cup, that those elements literally and I mean that in the traditional sense of that word, not the modern sense of the word, literally become the flesh and blood of Jesus. That They change substance to become those things. That is not what we believe here in this church. Um, but how do we express this idea that the, that the bread is his body? Because there is a sense in which it represents his body but it is more than that. It's deeper than that because that's not what he says. He doesn't say, this bread stands for my body. This bread represents my body. No, he says, this is my body. So I, I was reading some commentaries on it and I found this passage and I think this kind of sums it up in a, in a really nice way. This is from William Barclay and his commentary on 1 Corinthians. To those who take it in their hands and upon their lips with faith, and love, it is a means not only of memory, but of living contact with Jesus Christ. To an unbeliever, it would be nothing. To all who love Christ, it is the way to his presence. So then if we think about the cup, the cup, he says, uh, is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. So if we think about the new covenant, we, also have to we always have to think about that in relation to the old covenant. The old covenant... Um, the Old Covenant was contingent upon Israel's obedience, right? There are promises that God made in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel that are not contingent, but the ongoing blessing of Israel was contingent upon their collective obedience. But the New Covenant is not based on law. It is based on the gracious love of Jesus. His sacrifice paid the penalty for our sins and makes forgiveness possible. When we regularly take communion, we do two things then. So as we, we first off remember, right? we remember Jesus' sacrifice. 
And this is the only motivation we have for our obedience to him. We're not required to do anything, but everything we do is informed by Jesus' sacrifices. We consider why do Christians desire to be obedient? Why do we do good deeds? None of these things are do anything for our righteousness, right? Our righteousness is solely found in Jesus and in his sacrifice for us. But that's what kind of differentiates. That's why there are a lot of people that like to say that Christianity is not a religion, which, like, that's just a confusing thing to say to non-believers. But I don't know that it's helpful. But it is not in the sense that if you think of religion as a set of rules you have to obey in order to reach God or please God or earn your way to heaven, that is not what we believe. None of the things that we do, none of the obedience we might have, none of the good deeds we do, earn us anything. It is solely in response to Jesus' sacrifice. So it is important that we regularly remember that sacrifice, that we regularly remember what Jesus did for us and that our righteousness rests in that and then we are motivated in response to obey him and to follow him and to do good. The second thing Paul says that we do as we take communion is we proclaim Jesus' death until he comes again, that we proclaim what he did on the cross for all mankind. And that's another, that, that's one that I don't think we think about that much, that he's saying as we do that and as we are known for that, that, hey, what do Christians do? They take communion. Well, what does that mean? It, it's remembrance of Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us. We are proclaiming his death until he returns. So in light of these realities, it's of the utmost importance that we do this properly, which is Paul's next point. Look at verses 27 through 34. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things. I will give directions when I come. So a couple of things he says in this section, that if we eat the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner, we will be guilty of the body and blood of Jesus. There are consequences for not taking this seriously. And this is why, this is why we don't take communion when we, when I, this is why when we gather for like Christmas Eve and uh, Resurrection Sunday, when I know there will be a lot of like either somewhat believers or, or non-believers here. Um, that's why we don't take communion, because I know that this is serious, what he's saying here, that if we don't take it seriously, if we don't take it properly, it can have serious, physical, actual, real-world consequences. So I don't want to put people in danger. That's why we don't do it in those big um, gatherings. He says that before we take communion, each person should examine themsel- himself or herself. And it's not, notice that he says, 
don't take communion in an unworthy manner. But that has to be in relation to the gospel, right? That, that could sound like you have to be good enough to take communion. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying you're taking it in an unworthy manner, which means really just acknowledging that you are unworthy. Right? In relation to the gospel, it's about admitting the fact that we have sin, that we, that we are in need of his sacrifice. It's about recognizing our unworthiness, not of proving how worthy we are. So when we take communion, before we take communion, we should confess and repent of our sin, and we should recognize and acknowledge the significance of what we are doing. We should know, understand what we are doing. That's why we have that time before we actually take communion. That time is intended for you to pray, to confess and repent of sin, and to acknowledge and recognize the significance of what we are doing. He says specifically that we should discern that the bread is the body of Christ and discern that the cup is the new covenant in his blood. We should recognize and acknowledge these things. There is something interesting, though, here in verse 29. Look at verse 29 again. He says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, what could Paul mean by that when he says discern the body? Well, most directly, he's talked about the fact that the bread is the body of Christ. So recognizing that the discerning that the bread is the body of Christ, but that's not the only thing that we have referred to as the body of Christ. We also refer to the church as the body of Christ, right? The bread is the body of Christ, but we also refer to the church our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as the body of Christ. So in light of what he just talked about, about the body of Christ, meaning people, and what he's going to talk about in the next passage, it seems very clear to me that he's also saying that we need to discern that we are part of the body of Christ, that this is a communal event, that it is not just between us and Jesus, but it is us as a body of believers. In reality, it is never just you and Jesus. We must always be concerned for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? That's a common, it's a popular spiritualism today, which is this concept of like Christianity solo, where oh, it's just me and Jesus and that's all I need. That's never the way it's talked about in Scripture. It is always a communal thing. It is always something that we do as a body of believers. And so when he says we need to discern the body, he's not just talking about our body or the bread as the body of Christ, but he's talking about the body of believers and recognizing and acknowledging the, the needs of the people around you. And he says there are real consequences for those who do not take this seriously. Paul points out that there are those who are weak, who are ill, even those who have died because they have taken communion in an unworthy manner. And specifically, because they have done so in a way that hurts their brothers and sisters in Christ. He's specifically concerned with the way they have treated one another and in the way that they have failed to wait for one another. Look at his big takeaway at the end here in verses 33 and 34. It's, it's something that doesn't necessarily stand out for us because it's maybe not something that we would struggle with. But he says, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. 
His big takeaway is that they need to wait for everyone to arrive and share what they have. And if they can't do this, they should eat at home before they come. Which is why I said my point about how we potluck is real. This is what Paul is talking about specifically here, that we should care about one another and ensure that there is enough for everyone. I'll wrap up with this, three takeaways for today's message. Number one, consider the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. When we gather together, consider what are the things that people need, how can we share what we have. Number two, recognize the significance of the bread and the cup. Recognize what they are. And as we remember and proclaim it, that we discern what we are doing. And lastly, examine yourself before you take communion. Confess and repent of sin. And we'll have a chance to practice that right now. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to take communion together. We'll sing one final song after that. There'll be a prayer team over here that'll be available. If you'd like prayer for anything, they'd love to pray for you. Would you bow with me now? Father, we thank you for um, this word. We thank you for the fact that you have given us one another. And I pray that um, as the body of Christ, we would look out for one another. We would care for one another and put one another before ourselves. Father, as we take communion now, we pray that it would be in a way that is worthy of you, that it is honoring to you, that we would recognize the significance of what we are doing. And that we would confess and repent of the sin that we have fallen into. Pray these things in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen.